it, it's going to always be us on the inside, you all out there. And winning people over to our side to let them know these monstrosities is, is not an easy task in and of itself because of the history that they have to, to read and study. It's things they never even knew about no more. So it changed their whole ideology around. And then they have to really see things in front of their faces to really grasp it and, and fully understand it. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prison rebels in the solitary unit at the Allegheny County Jail in Pittsburgh set fires amid protests on April 23rd. After prisoners were denied access to psychological medication, a fire started in pod 8E when a burning wick was dropped into an air vent. Tensions were already high in the facility due to COVID-19 related quarantines of multiple pods. Assistant Public Information Officer at the City of Pittsburgh, Maurice Matthews, failed to comment on the withholding of medication. The racial disparities in the Pittsburgh criminal justice system, on top of medical neglect, has shaped these tensions. In 2018, Allegheny County was awarded a grant from an organization that encourages decarceration. Since then, the inmate population has fallen 36%, yet the number of black people incarcerated has grown. According to a newly released report by the Abolitionist Law Center Court Watch, black defendants are 26.5% more likely to be subjected to secured monetary bail than non-black community members, meaning they must pay their bail amount in full, typically through a professional bail bondsman, or else be forced into confinement at Allegheny County Jail. The group Defend the Atlanta Forest are opposing a plan by the Atlanta police to cut down much of a 500-acre tree-covered park to create a new police training facility. The land is the former site of the old Atlanta prison farm, which, beginning in 1917, infamously forced prisoners to work in unsafe conditions. Many prisoners were sickened by arsenic exposure from a contaminated water supply, causing a substantial number of deaths. The main prison farm was closed in 1998, but a smaller juvenile facility remains on a portion of the land. Local residents oppose the destruction of the forest, the risk of further contamination, expansion of police power, and the expenditure of even more funds on police drills. On May 19, 2021, Quentin Jones is scheduled to be executed by the state of Texas for the 1999 murder of his great aunt, Berthina Bryant. A grassroots campaign is fighting to get Jones clemency, a lessening of his sentence to life without parole. If a majority of the parole board recommends clemency to Governor Abbott and the governor agrees, Jones' life could be saved. Jones committed the crime when he was 20 years old after an enduring and an abusive and traumatic childhood. He has accepted full responsibility for his actions and expresses extreme regret and remorse. The victim's family, being Jones's family as well, are opposed to his execution. They have said his death will only cause them more suffering and that they recognize his remorse and have forgiven him. 
Jones's execution is one of very few state executions scheduled during the pandemic. Texas and Missouri are the only states to carry out an execution during the global pandemic. Those calling for Jones's clemency are pointing to unfair sentencing based on race. On May 4th, Dan Baker will go to trial in Tallahassee, Florida. We've previously covered Dan's case on KiteLine. He was arrested in January on politically inflected charges that he had allegedly called for the defense of the Florida State Capitol from white supremacist protests. His alleged call was made in the wake of the January 6th clashes in D.C. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has signed into law the New Mexico Civil Rights Act banning qualified immunity, a judicial doctrine that protects law enforcement officials from liability even when they break the law. New Mexico is now the second state to ban qualified immunity. Colorado passed such legislation in June 2020. Under the new law, a person has the right to sue a state, city or county when her or his rights under the state's constitution have been violated, such as in cases of police misconduct. Passage of the law will enable New Mexico residents to hold officials accountable for their wrongdoing. Police officers rarely face criminal charges or even internal disciplinary actions when they engage in misconduct. Since 1989, almost 37% of cases in which people were exonerated for crimes they didn't commit involved police misconduct. Innocence Project state policy advocate Laurie Roberts said, quote, The new law puts a price tag on police misconduct and creates a strong incentive for agencies to adopt and enforce policies that prevent abuses which can lead to wrongful convictions. It also provides exonerees with the financial justice they deserve after having their rights violated by government officials and having their freedom unjustly taken away." End quote. On today's episode, we share two perspectives on the role of study as practiced in the face of repression and directly against repression. First, we complete our interview with Garrett Felber with a focus on his termination by the University of Mississippi in retaliation for his outspoken criticism of its white supremacist structure and how he and others have worked to ensure that the anti-prison work of the group's study and struggle can continue despite his firing. Just as Garrett must also study and navigate these academic power structures, our next guest, Emily Mushakor, describes carefully tracking the changing dynamics at the California prison where he's caged. He discusses the careful measures he and his new African comrades have to take to compose a movement together with other groups of prisoners. Lastly, he goes into the importance of their inside study groups, as well as the intellectual work he invests in thinking with people on the outside, sending essays out to publications and blogs. Your chair said, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to accept this grant. You were, by the way, already a fellow at Harvard, right? But it was... COVID time, so you're physically not in Mississippi. So I'm on, you know, research leave. And yeah, so so this grant was rejected. I sort of made this public. And then really, to be frank, went into dealing with the aftermath of that, which was that I had to ask the Landon Foundation to rescind the check and then reissue it. I had some real concerns that they might not do that and we would lose $42,000, which was... Uh-huh. a lot of our budget oh, yeah. um and so and i also had to find a fiscal sponsor which uh-huh. I, again so grateful to the folks at haymarket books who are now our fiscal oh, sponsor really really good comrades so the money is still going to get to go to study and struggle yep so we're fully nice. now just running study and struggle through right. haymarket so so as far as i was concerned i was sort of just like let me deal with mm-hmm. with this problem mm-hmm. and you know the other things that are happening <laughs> the world and my own life 
yeah. um, which are many. And then, yeah, I got this request to, to meet about it via Zoom. I mean, this just goes back to a longer history of academic freedom and my criticisms of the university, but I think it's worth saying out loud to other people who might go through this, because I think these institutions operate pretty similarly. People will tell you things on the phone and in Zoom calls mm-hmm. that they will not put in an email. You know, I guess I should have been more savvy to this, but when I when my chair asked me to have a phone call about the grant, I just didn't see it coming. But the things that were said in that conversation, I, I just simply asked that the chair make the decision articulated for the full department, because it was a decision that was made on behalf of the department. This was not my chair making a decision on their own behalf. It was, yeah, it was, it was the Department of History's decision made by a single person without notifying anyone else. So I just said, at the very least, this has ramifications for other faculty who might apply for grants and have them rejected. So we should know what the grounds are. Right. Um, I know what I was told on the phone, but I said, look, our full faculty should know what the grounds are that should be written out and we should have a an optional meeting. I, I, I understand people's time during the pandemic and all of that, but mm-hmm. so that was my, that was my response was I, I don't want to have any more meetings, calls, Zooms, whatever, which I anticipated would be more sort of wrist slapping or, or you right. know, telling me how to communicate or this or that. And I just said, look, I, I think we need to have the full conversation as a department about the implications of this. Uh-huh. So I turned down several requests to meet via Zoom with that same request in return. I said, I'll, I'll meet to talk about the grant when we've done these other things. Uh-huh. And then I didn't hear anything for, for three or four weeks. And then I received a notification that my contract was not renewed, which is, they like to say, we didn't fire him. His contract was not renewed, but you and I and everyone who's <laughs> tenure track that's knows a, that that's fine. a firing. Because you had just sailed through your third year review, right? Yeah, this wasn't like, yeah, the, they've made clear in subsequent comments that this has, they've stated unequivocally, the provost has said, this has nothing to do with service, teaching, or research. So those are the three criteria that were <laughs> evaluated on, right? What, when they say that, this has nothing to do with research, teaching, or service, what do they say it does have to do with? The letter itself says that it has to do with a, an untenable relationship between chair and faculty, i.e. me, so. Wow, I'd have been fired 10 million times by now if that were grounds for- Yeah, I mean, we all know, everyone in academia knows that there are many untenable relationships between chair and faculty that exist. And I would certainly not characterize ours as that. I would say we're fine up until this termination. So So what was your reaction when you got this email telling you that you were fired? I mean, I hesitate to say shock because I really didn't think this institution had the ability to shock me at this point. Uh But it, it really did- yeah, I, I just. Um, Did your heart fall into your stomach? That sounds that sounds appropriate. I just I realized that we were entering into a new, yeah, a new stage that I didn't anticipate or want to go through. And what did you do when you got this email? I uh, think I went for a walk. I'm not sure. I took a few days. Now I'm not on Twitter, but I know that Twitter blew up over this. So can you narrate some of what happened? next how you what what you decided to do and where you took it on social media and how you publicized it and the response yeah i mean i didn't do much of public you know uh-huh. everything that led up to this had been publicizing things on twitter so i really i i just shared with my colleagues the next week what had happened and shared the termination letter with your um, fellow historians in the department yeah 
and I, you know, and I reached out to grad students and kind of let them know, or the grad students who I work with. So that was, that was really it. I just sort of um, wanted everyone to, because this was not, again, this was a unilateral decision by the chair in conversation with administration, but not, you know, we talk a lot about shared governance and departments. This was not an example of that. This was not right. a faculty decision, a consensus decision. This was not even something that a few tenured faculty had been made aware of. No one knew about it. So I, I shared it with everyone just so we all were on the same page. Were they then, also shocked and dismayed? Well, I can't speak for our full department. I mean, that's 28 people, but the colleagues who I know and work with, and certainly the that's mostly the Americanists. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes without saying that this is completely without precedent. We've had examples of academic freedom violations over the last few years, but this I, th I think the pretense of this, that this was about me not taking a Zoom meeting right. um, as grounds for terminating a tenure track faculty member yeah. with no... No process. No, yeah, no dude process, no warning, no sort of, as you mentioned, like the annual reviews that we all go through as faculty, nothing there. So we were in sort of unprecedented territory. And I think, yeah, I'm sure the fallout will continue long after. What do you think are the most important parts of your scholarship, your activism, and what you were doing that got under the skin of Ole Miss officials and donors? In, in some sense, I'm trying not to speculate on things I can't know. There's too many things to know in this. I do think it's important to note, though, that one thing that the university does well, and academia does well, I guess, is that it isolates work that's collective. And to give a kind of boring bureaucratic example of how this works, it actually makes something, so study and struggle is a very collective collaborative process. It involves all the people who are studying inside, it involves all the people who are studying outside, it involves a bookstore who we collaborate with, who send all the materials, our people who are writing and coordinating to hosts, uh, and just on and on translation. So I'm really just one piece of all of that organizing. And what the university does, even in the sort of bureaucracy of running money through it is that that all has to go through me because I'm the faculty member. Right. In one beautiful framing, you are the node for the redistribution of resources, you know, which is what Fred Moten and Stefan O'Harney recommend. It's what abolitionist educators try to be. Yeah, it just, it, but I think it's, so yes, it's, um, I'm trying to do that work, uh, <laughs> but there's so many ways that the university and I just think academia as a, as a formation creates, I mean, we think about this with the books we write. They're like single authored books, but that makes no sense because the ideas are so collective. That's right. And so in our acknowledgement pages, we're always like trying to mitigate against that, but there's just right. no way to sort of, to square that. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true with study and struggle, which is that, you know, me getting terminated is this like very hyper individual thing. It's about, it, it's almost become this, the chair and me. And it's just not about that. You know, it's about this, it's about the power structure of Mississippi Absolutely. and the collective work we're doing. And then it plays out through these two individual lives in this way that's, I think, of a, a fiction. Right. And I mean, even their attempt to close off the spigot by naming you as the spigot so that, you know, say no to you and the money won't get there, it got there anyway. You were able to operationalize some of the collectivity that does exist for the financial path. That's, that's awesome to recognize. Well, that. and I think just to get back to our conversation about the, the dialectic of repression and resistance, yeah. the thing that I find beautiful is that 
when this became public, so many people, I mean, we had this fundraiser that we were doing at the time. Uh, it was a holiday drive partnered uh -huh. with Pauline Rogers, who I mentioned earlier, to raise money for toiletries for people who were incarcerated. Uh -huh. And our goal was $25,000. And I was sort of like on Twitter, you know, just like three more days, two more days. And then like when this happened, we met our goal of $25,000 because uh -huh. um, people were reaching out and asking how they could support me. And I said, look, just donate to this thing that we're organizing. So there's there's these beautiful moments for me where where they try to isolate a person and our collective response. And to me, that's the essence of this whole thing is that when there's moments of repression that we respond with greater vigor and mass than, than they can. I mean, there's been an amazing outpouring of support for you, of protest of Ole Miss, of writing about this. There's been articles in the Chronicle. There was this wonderful panel with you and a bunch of major luminaries in terms of scholar activists focused on the carceral state, Ruthie Gilmore, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, about five others. It's been pretty magnificent to see, and it's been extremely visible. How has Ole Miss responded to the very visible parts of the controversy, the reaction and the protest against the action they took against you? It's sort of doing what they usually do, which is just kind of waiting it out. There was one response from the provost to uh, the three major professional organizations, ASA, AHA, and OAH, that, that wrote letters of concern. Wow. Yeah. So. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, so the provost felt it was necessary to respond when those major organizations yeah. wrote letters. But again, it's just kind of muddying the waters and waiting until it passes. It's a place that exists in a state of perpetual crisis. And part of the re way that it keeps moving forward with the status quo is to keep people in that crisis. Right. So every semester I was down there, there was something. And it's so hard for us to do the work amidst that grinding of crisis after crisis after crisis. And I think that's, that's what they rely on. What does it feel like, Garrett, to be at the center of such an enormous, visible, national, even probably international controversy? Horrible. Horrible. Um, no, I mean, no one, no one wants to be at the center. I mean, the visibility of it all and the sort of like magnifying glass of it. I appreciate all, that point of support. It was really more than I could have ever hoped for. And I look forward to moving on with the work. I mean, you're good this year and you're good through December of next year if you want to be in Mississippi next fall, but then you'll be unemployed. And I kind of have a feeling you're going to land on your feet, but that must be a little bit at, at the very least nerve wracking just to know that you now have to go look for another academic position, you know, with all of this Sturm und Drang in the background. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. It's a big deal to terminate a tenure track faculty person. It means a lot to their world and their life and their family. Well, I know that you are going to land on your feet. And what that means is that you will continue to do your amazing work of organizing and of pushing for the abolition of, of the prison system and of racial capitalism. And it's a privilege to be your colleague. And thanks so much for talking to KiteLine today. Thank you, Nicole. It's so good to hear from you. Beginning this fall, Garrett will be a visiting faculty fellow in American Studies at Yale University, where he'll be writing a biography of Black Puerto Rican anarchist and former political prisoner Martin Sostre, and continuing to organize with study and struggle in Mississippi. And now we have Emily Mushakor calling in from the Corcoran facility in California.
inside the system and learning firsthand how they operate. They, they've changed up so much since I was last in the general population. You know, from being in solitary all those years, we really didn't know that our plate was going to be this full. But, you know, it, it seems like we're not just up against CDC, but we're up against all the bureaucrats as well who have to do with having stock in CDC, you know? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's been kind of hectic. We, we've been in litigation. Uh, just some of us right here in this courtroom, as well as in the one across the street for the last month and a half. So we don't know which direction it's going to go in, but we, we, look for, we hope for the best. We're trying to get these habeas corpuses, they're not uh, filing a habeas corpus to get people released who have health problems and who caught the COVID uh, has been a struggle. And we've gotten prison action network had came up with an idea for us to, to, to write up a 602 but in the forms of it going to a habeas corpus with their help and getting it into the courts to see if they can give us relief from it so we've been trying to flood the court systems with it it's, it's been hard because they've gotten the word out to all the different prisons but some people had the virus and were hospitalized you know some people got moved around you know, so it was hard to really to network like we really wanted to. But here in Corcoran, we did it on the group 602. But once we got that going, they banned it. They took all the paperwork out, so we can't use it. We don't know how it's going to work because it's, it's not a guarantee that they'll release us. It's just giving the courts an understanding of how we're being treated in here since the virus has started. You know, here in Corcoran, we've had to follow 602 just to get the mask. We were the last prison to get the mask, okay? We had to have a sit-in and uh, refuse to lock up at one point because they decided to move inmates who had the virus from one prison to another prison and then move them from that prison to this prison, you know? And we couldn't even stop that. But the lawyers who helped us get the stimulus checks jumped right on the case, and they were able to get CDC penalized to where they had to pay a fine, you know? But that, that type of a, of a penalty doesn't do anything really to stop the virus from spreading, you know, so it, it, it worked in a sense where they, they didn't transform any longer if they were, if you had the virus, but they still try to transfer people there that didn't have the virus once they got vaccinated. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a hard fight, you know, you, you, you just have to keep going. You can't stop even when you lose, you just got to find a way to keep going. Well, we're our own liberators, you know. It, it, it's going to always be us on the inside, you all out there. And winning people over to our side to let them know these monstrosities is, is not an easy task in and of itself because of the history that they have to, to read and study. It's things they never even knew about no more. So it changed their whole ideology around. And then they have to really see things in front of their faces to really grasp it and, and fully understand it. And then when they become a part of it, a lot of people get frustrated, you know, and I always like to encourage people not to get stressed, frustrated because we will win in the end if we don't give up. And that's what they're counting on is first always give up, you know. We have to be aware of their tactics, their strategies, and just always have backup plans, you know, because other doors open when one's closest, you know, and, and that's what we've been dealing with a lot, a lot more so within these last couple of months. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep pushing. We'll, we'll, we'll keep pushing. The latest developments is... They've opened up the program a little bit more, so now when we go to the yard, 
it's an all-day thing, two buildings at a time. And when we when we have day room, it's the whole tier. So now the whole tier have the half a day, and then the next tier have the next half a day. So it's a little bit more movement. You know, people are back taking the GED courses. Uh, we have one vocational class up and running. We have some self-help groups uh, up and running. People are going back to work. And we're still taking pictures every month. We can take pictures. They're letting us paint murals in some of the buildings and in the gym. The gym was supposed to open, but it, it never did. They're just going to finish painting first, and uh, then they might reopen it. They might be giving us a food sale coming up here shortly. And now that it's Ramadan, some comrades are able to get their, their Juma services on Friday, plus two extra days of the week for religious services. And then we also got a Christian service and a Jewish service. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And the newest development, just last week, a couple of brothers were able to get two time slots for uh, the 5% service. So those are those are huge uh, accomplishments that we didn't have lately. feels like people's spirits are more uplifted a little bit more. They can breathe a little bit, not too fatigued from what it looks like to me. It seems like a lot more productive work is being done. Little groups here and there in the different buildings. People having study sessions, you know, invite other ethnicities to be involved in it. You know, we still have to be strategic, us New Africans, because the eye is always on us because of our ideology and wanting to win over the whole masses. You know, that that's not really common for us to be successful with that due to the way California prison systems are designed. You know, the, the hostilities were always racial. And they were always provoked by the guards, you know, because that keeps the attention off them. But since our release from solitary confinement, we've been able to build a lot more unity. Um, I've been hearing word from other comrades in other institutions where they're still keeping the, the fight going. We've rallied around the things that have been happening to Asian people and uh, trying to just send our supports out there to the Asian community that, you know, we love and support them and we run solidarity with them. You know, on the inside of prison, us and the Asians, you know, the, the Pacific Islanders, we consider the others, they're a part of the New African struggle, you know, they're allies to us in here. So we've been working with that right now, getting some, some helpful essays out. I'm doing, I've am doing. i been doing some blogs and some newsletters for a couple of outside comrades. And uh, yeah, just, you know, staying busy, staying busy. What types of texts are people reading in their study group? And can you say a little bit about why you choose to study together? Mainly other cultural history, just to show how we've all been oppressed by the same system the same class of people and their capitalist system, just like different material. Right now, Ho Chi Minh, we're reading, studying Mao, Amakar Cabral, Patrice Dumumba, Zapata, Che Guevara, just to name a few. That's mainly the books that we've been reading and studying right now and just trying to show that the revolutionary spirit is alive in all of us. We just have to bring it out of us. You know, and some that aren't aware of it, let's teach them of the importance of it and the purpose for it, you know. Bobby Sands' diary was read a couple of weeks ago in one of our study groups just so that people can understand the importance of our hunger strike that we had, you know, 10 years ago and what the meaning behind it was and how serious we were on getting their attention to let us up out of there, you know, and just try to keep these young minds active and progressive in a positive way. Thanks to Garrett, Nicole, and Emily Moon. You can find many previous episodes with each of them on our new website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. 
Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.